hey, we're a small, nimble company, but there's an attitude of growth and desire for the company to grow as well as for individuals to grow. You just need to decide if you want to be one of those individuals or not. And I was like, well, doesn't everyone? And he's like, well, maybe they say they do, but it's really about your actions and how you show up every day and how you contribute. So that's what I mean by you got to decide if you want to be one of those people and you could create a career path based on that. Welcome to episode 88 of Clicks to Bricks, the podcast about multi-location marketing. I'm your host, Rob Reed. My guest today is Dana Hathaway, and she is the Senior Vice President of Marketing for Extra Space Storage. I had the pleasure of visiting Dana in person at the company's headquarters in Salt Lake City, Utah. This is a brand that lives and dies based on its search performance. So we go into a lot of detail about winning category search terms in a market where the competition consists of national brands as well as mom and pop businesses. I also ask about the value of building a brand in what many would consider a commodity business. Dan Hathaway, thanks so much for joining us on Clicks to Bricks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell everybody where we are right now. Right now, Rob and I are sitting in our headquarters in Salt Lake City, Utah, right at the base of Little and Big Cottonwood Canyon. So we're staring out the window at the incredible (laughs) mountains and maybe fresh snow is happening right now as we're looking up there. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, there's definitely some weather in the area. And this is the first interview I'm getting to do in person in Utah. Frequent listeners will definitely be aware that I live in Park City. I talk about that quite a bit because that's usually where I'm doing the interviews remotely, but this is the first one that I've actually been able to do in person locally, which is quite a treat. Yeah, very cool. (laughs) And as, as Dana said, Extra Space Storage Headquarters is right at the base of Utah's famous Cottonwood Canyon. So you've got Snowbird, Alta, Solitude, Brighton, four of the best ski resorts in North America, right out the door. So as we kind of get into the part where I asked Dana about if there's any open roles, if you're a skier, (laughs) pay close attention to that section. I'm going to preface that right up front. So as we do, let's start out with a fun fact about Dana Hathaway that most might not know. Yeah. So I had to think about this one for a minute. It's just like, okay, what is fun? But I'm the mom of three boys leading to the fun fact. I find that a fun fact in itself. (laughs) Three teenage boys who keep me very active, but they are soccer players. And through the love of soccer, one of them in particular, two of them turned me on to Premier League soccer. And so at first it was just like, okay, yeah, sure. I'll watch 10 minutes of this game with you. Not willing to give a lot of my time to it. And now I'm the one that's looking at the schedule, looking at the points, getting up at 5.30 a.m. on the weekends to watch these Premier League soccer game. So kind of a fun fact, nothing I would have ever thought would have happened to me, but I'm pretty serious about it now. So You're, that's, that's hardcore soccer mom right <laughs> yeah, there. That's right. Yeah. New level. <laughs> I did the same thing with Formula One a few years ago. It wasn't because of my daughters, but it was just, I just woke up one day and actually I had broken my leg skiing, connecting it. And so I had a lot of time on the couch. There you go. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to get into Formula One. And this was years ago before it's gotten very big since then. If you've been familiar with like the Drive to Survive 
series on Netflix. Can't it's, talk that. It's essentially Formula One meets Real Housewives. So it's <laughs> very interesting. I'm intrigued. <laughs> it's it's worth a watch. It's transformed the sport in the US. It like literally doubled the audience of Formula One. Amazing. But it's just another it's another one of those kind of European sports that Americans traditionally hadn't had access to. Right. And you got into Premier League through your through your sons and most Americans have gotten into Formula One through Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> Funny enough. Yeah. 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 So cool. All right. Well, let's dive in then. Extra space storage. What is the story there? Yeah. So we have a pretty cool story, I think. We were founded in 1977 by our founder, Ken Woolley, and since then have just had tremendous growth, right? I mean, we now are the largest self-storage company in the industry. I had a recent acquisition last year that made us the largest in terms of numbers. That's really not our goal, to be fair. It's the, really we want to be the best at what we do, but with that acquisition. So tremendous growth over the years. I've been here about, well, almost 25 years. When I started, we had about 30 properties across the country, and now we're over 3,500. So we just pride ourselves in doing a good job. We want to create a really good customer experience and make sure that it's as easy as possible for customers to transact with us. And that's, you know, at a high level, what we do, we, I'm sure we'll dig deeper. So you tell me where you want to go. <laughs> well, is it fundamentally a real estate company then? Fundamentally a real estate company for sure. We have a lot of assets, but we like to think bigger than that. So the marketing arm of the business of the organization of which I'm obviously involved plays a significant role, as does you know the revenue management and data science teams, which we can talk about and how we partner with them. So we want it to be something that grows and grows significantly over the years, which we've done, and we still think there's a lot of future growth opportunity. Let's dive into the marketing then. The question is like, how do you market storage units? But more specifically, it's how do you differentiate in what many might consider you know a commodity business? Yeah, for sure. That's fair. And we talk about that a lot. And it's been one of the challenges and joys of my career here is trying to tap into that and figure that out with the team. But yeah, so first is a commodity business for sure. But you and I both have our iPhones in front of us. Phones are a commodity, right? But Apple's done this amazing thing where they've turned a commodity business into something that we're incredibly passionate about and will pay a ridiculous amount of money for this phone that other brands can yeah, it's do. A, sim- it's a luxury good. Yeah, can do a similar yeah. thing, but like, right, you'll go out and drop, you'll stand in line. So we've tried to look at those examples and say, hey, how can we do something similar in storage? There's still a couple differences that separate us from some of those products that like the iPhone, which is it's a need-based product. You know, our phone is turned into more than just a need-based product, right? But it's a need-based product there's not a ton of repeat business. And so you only, when the customer needs it, they need it once. You don't have the ability to develop this deep experience or relationship with them because they're not going to come back to you time in and time again. Some of that happens, but it's limited. So what we've tried to do and focus on is how do we make this the best experience possible compared to anyone else out there doing it? Now you have The industry is made up of a few REITs or larger publicly traded companies, but you have your competition is also the mom and pops or the small operators that are right next to you. So the reason I bring that up now is you have to consider those two very different dynamics in terms of our competition. The little bit more sophisticated operators are going to be those uh, national brands. And then the mom and pops, not that they're not sophisticated, but there's a different feel and execution often that happens there at that level. 
And so as we've looked at that, we've tried to say, we have to do better than both. We have to do better than the other competition that is executing much like we are. And we have to look at what the mom and pop or smaller operators are doing and do better than them as well. So we have this digital vision that basically says we want to allow our customers to interact and transact with us however they choose, whether high tech or high touch. And so to us, what that means is we have to be able to let them transact on their iPhone or their desktop, or if they want to call someone on the phone, that still is a relevant piece of our business today. Mm -hmm. And that has to be an option for them. And so as we look at all those channels and the ways the customer can interact with us, what's the journey and how do we make sure that journey is as awesome as it can be and take care of every step along the way to make sure it's relevant and connects with the customers. That's music to my ears. It really is. I mean, I think more brands should be taking that same approach because I think a lot ignore the mom and pops, right? They're like, we're a national brand. We've got national clout. You know, we do national advertising. We're competing against our other national competitors. And the mom and pops tend to be a bit of a blind spot for them. You know, like if you're Starbucks, you're ignoring the mom and pop coffee shops. If you're Chipotle, you're ignoring the mom and pop Mexican restaurants that you compete with every single day and for a big part of your business. So I, I love hearing that for sure. So what are some of the things that you do that might surprise marketers being in a, again, what would otherwise be a commodity business? I know that I think great marketing can make it great product and great marketing can transcend a commodity business to your point yeah. with with the iPhone, right? So yeah. what are you doing to actually do that? Yeah. So on the marketing side, I'd say a couple things. One, just a fun kind of fact that probably will surprise some people. We're very active on social media, including TikTok. And a lot of people are like, why, what would could you possibly do on TikTok that would be interesting? But I would just tell people to go check it out. We have a lot of fun. We tap into storage is all about life transitions, Right. And some of those are really positive transitions. Some of them are hard transitions. So we try and tap into those life transitions with meaningful, sometimes fun, sometimes empathetic content. And so we use TikTok even to do that. So that's a little bit fun and different from where we're coming from. Right. The other thing that constantly surprises people about us as an organization, and this is very much true for my area of the business is we're incredibly sophisticated. So we partner very closely with our revenue management and data science teams. They're very smart and intelligent about how they look at pricing and the opportunities we have there. So we partner with them to look at, you know, what should pricing be on the website versus the call center versus in store? And should those be different? And if they should be different, why and how? And of course, there are some differences there, but what are the opportunities based on what we know about the customers interacting with these different channels? And how do we look at maximizing the revenue? Also making that a good customer experience for those customers, because we're going to tap into what we know matters to them and make it relevant. And so we're incredibly sophisticated. I think people look at us from the outside of like, oh, it's a cell storage company. There's not a lot interesting happening there. There's a lot of really interesting, cool stuff that we do from that to even how we approach Google and the the spend and the way we utilize our dollars and the level of sophistication that goes in there. We, we built our own in-house pricing model as well as an in-house model that takes all of our business data coupled with all of our Google data and then you know, real time run some algorithms to help us understand how we should bid 
on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And that's all done here in-house. None of that's you know outside of these walls. So again, the level of sophistication usually is pretty surprising to me. <laughs> yeah. But also from what I know about the company and the space in general, you are operating at pretty close to capacity, full occupancy yes. all the time, yes. right? So there's not a ton of inventory even that you're marketing. So are you having to pull back marketing in areas where like you couldn't actually even possibly sell another one? Like why would you try to market there when you're already at your full capacity? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So two things. One, yeah, we're at pretty high occupancies. We continue. That's something we even challenge ourselves with. Oh, we thought 85% or 90% was the ideal occupancy. Looks like we can push it further. So how do we get to 92%? You know, so we're always challenging ourselves on what that right level of occupancy is. And then I think an important part of the business that you may not be familiar with is there's constant churn. So the move out percentage is high enough that we've got to always be backfilling those rentals. Your length of stay is, you know, probably about, it's about 12 months, but you've got some shorter term customers that cycle even faster than that. And so there's a constant need for that marketing engine to be working to fill the churn that's happening on the business side. Mm. And Google, as you mentioned, I mean, has to be Channel number one. Front and center, right? <laughs> for everybody. For everybody. I mean, it's not for everybody. I mean, for- in, Fair. In your space, because it's just that, it's that very, I need it. Somebody, right? The customer journey for a storage space is just like a triggered moment where- Yes. I need it. And where do they go? If they need something, they go to Google. So yeah. so you got a big paid side to that and a big organic side. Absolutely. Uh, in terms of your efforts. Yeah, we have teams that specialize in both of those decent sized teams all in-house. And then we have some partnerships externally, but mostly just kind of strategic partners on thought leadership that help us understand and see stuff that we may have blinders to or just an outside view, but teams in both areas. So yeah, on the, on the organic side, obviously the, you know, the Google three pack is the Holy grail. So that has to be being monitored on a daily basis across what was again, 3,500 yes. locations. Yes. And it's obviously, again, you've got your big national competitors and then you got your mom and pops that are vying for those three spots. So that data, you're, you're keeping a pretty close eye on, I would assume. Absolutely. Yeah, we monitor that daily. We use some outside partners, but we pull in that data and then we have reporting internally that's real time. And so we pull all that data in, everything from the local like phone calls, website clicks, driving directions, like all that's coming in real time. And we're pretty actively looking at that. I noticed you said something about an article you had written on understanding the impact of local search. I was a little surprised by that just because it's such key to our success and our bread and butter here. Yeah. It's amazing. The CMOs that I talk to, they're just like, we do some of that, you know, and I'm like, wow. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. Google is just sitting there between you and your customers right? They got all your customers and all of your customers have needs on a daily basis, whether it's a cup of coffee or a burrito or storage. a storage unit, right? And they're searching for those things every single day. And Google is like, just like this traffic driver, just kind of diverting business to you. Yeah. You'd be surprised at the number of brands that just take it for granted. Like they think it just happens, huh. right? Yeah. I wish, right? I <laughs> <No>. wish. <laughs> and especially, but in your space, obviously it's like, and also you're, you're dealing with a much larger basket size, 
too. So every every unit actually is, is you know versus a cup of coffee, it's material to the business. Yeah. So it was surprising. I mean, it's core to our digital strategy, local in particular. Like we know the value and the return that it provides to us, and so it's highly important to us. And so the just to check this box, everything's corporate owned, right? No, everything is not corporate owned. Actually, we have a okay. we have a management platform. And we have quite a bit of our portfolio under that platform. And then we have wholly owned properties. And then we have some in joint venture relationships. So kind of the three buckets, if you will. Okay. So it's not a franchisee. Not a franchisee. The owners come to us who, you know, they do fly our flag, our brand flag. So it's all branded extra space. Mm. Okay. It's more like in like the petroleum industry does that quite a bit with like a chef you can brand a chevron but like okay. you own it yeah. you own it but yeah. you the owner doesn't do any of the day-to-day nuts and bolts oh, okay. they hand Take full i mean management. i would say it's probably more like a franchisee model but there's some definite differences not included there we run the day-to-day operations we run the marketing we do kind of soup to nuts there okay so that's a whole another arm of the business that's going out essentially partnering yes. with, with those it's, what, it's what would one, be a mom and pop yeah it's you know, one growth it. model for us yeah and then gives us advantages on on my side, revenue management side for sure of scale, you know, and how we can get certain advantages because of the scale of data that we have to tell us insights that other people probably don't have access to because of that scale. And is there also a field marketing component to your organization? So I'll answer that question how I interpret it. You correct me if I'm going where you didn't want to. But when I hear field marketing, I think, do we have people out in various parts of the country executing marketing tactics for us. Is that where yeah. you're going? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So today, no, a hundred percent of our marketing is all digital and all run out of here in Salt Lake City. hundred percent digital. hundred percent digital. So we, no sponsorships, no naming rights. Occasionally, <laughs> but occasionally, but no, I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. I'll tell you where we are on that is it's just really hard to drive an ROI or connect an ROI back to that program. We've done some of that stuff over the years. We used to be pretty aggressive with field marketing, kind of pre-internet boom, if you will. We're really big with field marketing and did tons of events at our properties with autographs from football stars, et cetera, et cetera. Super, super high effort, right? Yeah. And And really hard to low return because you just can't measure it. There's so much opportunity to just invest digitally in your marketing efforts that that's where we continue to invest because we can track every penny almost yeah. to a rental. So that's where we focus. Now, that being said, it's important to recognize and know our store managers are really, really critical to this entire customer experience, including, I would say, somewhat pseudo-filled marketing agents for us, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't go out and beat the streets. Now, maybe occasionally, if there's a real need for it to visit you know, the Chamber of Commerce or a new apartment complex that goes up in the area, but it's very rare. Their job is to be at the properties, let us drive the traffic to them, and then do the work, which obviously is marketing, right? But do the work to convert those customers into rentals at the property. For those customers that are coming in and haven't already rented on their laptop or through the call center, which a customer can do. So I would say they're you know, we don't call them field marketing. They have a small component, which is to run the stores well and make sure that that part of the marketing equation is taken care of, kind of closing the cell. Yeah, that's where, you know, a lot of chief marketing officers are also chief customer experience officers. Yeah. Right. So you touch that as well with the folks on the ground and what that experience is for the customer. 
Yeah, definitely. So we have the ownership of that part of the business, the store managers is under our operations wing, but super close partnership with them to talk about like, okay, here's what's happening on the digital experience side. How do we make sure that continues once the customers come to the store and what do we know about our customers? And so what should it look like when they get there? We also have a CX team that kind of is a bridge between the two teams, the marketing side and the op side. Okay, how do we put all this together? What do we know about our customers and how do we put it together to make that seamless? So store manager, closest thing to field marks. We've tried it. It worked as well as it could have in the day, right? When we didn't have digital marketing, but as digital marketing came on, our field marketing and even traditional Direct mail was a significant part of our business 15 years ago. And for those listeners who even know what this is, <laughs> yellow page advertising. So, oh, yeah. you know, Good all of that went down pretty quickly as the digital world opened up and we shifted all dollars from those programs to 100% digital. So that's phenomenal. You're a, in my experience, a one of a kind in terms of that level of focus and confidence. And as a marketer, the skepticism around what would be considered brand marketing, right? I find that fascinating and really cool, Yeah. Actually. <laughs> so to clarify, I mean, I'm a huge brand marketer and believe in the power of brand. It obviously depends on your business, and our business is a little more unique mm-hmm. where that brand, if we were to go spend $10 million a year on brand advertising, just pure brand advertising, I'm not sure I could look our CEO in the eyes and tell him that was the best use of our investment, right? Because of this need-based product and those dollars would be better spent on Google or Uh other search engines where I know I could measure the return I was getting the organization, right? And, And do right there. So we believe in brand. We just look at it slightly differently. So we do a ton. I mean, this has an SEO benefit, of course, but we do a ton of content that we put out on our blog and different channels that helps that brand in its digital format, right? So we believe we have a very, very strong digital brand. It's like I said, it's it's really cool to see that and to see it really work. Yeah. And my question was going to be about awareness. And so like initially when you said, yeah, we're really just about digital, I was thinking like your customer funnel must be like just, you're all focused right toward the bottom of the funnel. It's like right when that need is. But I guess, because there isn't a certain aspect of like, okay, look, let's you've gotten into the three pack, right? Where somebody searches for, you know, storage unit near me, you've got into three pack and the brand can be the difference on what one of those three, the consumer actually clicks. And so if I'm hearing you right, that's going to be accounted for in content and other digital channels where they could have, where you could have impacted awareness and kind of influenced that click. Yeah. I would say it's accounted for in the content, social media, you know, YouTube, the paid advertising we're doing, we do some connected TV and other stuff, but it's on a smaller scale. And then the interaction that consumers have with our product, that's almost unknown. It just happens in their day-to-day commute that they pass the same storage facility and they see it and it's there, but it's not something that they pay close attention to until they wake up one morning and they need our product. And then they oftentimes think, What's that place I drive by every day that, you know, is in, I should go find them. And then they go do some searches on Google and look for storage near me usually. And we're all over there with content and options, whether it be paid local or 
for sure organic. So again, that content starts to play a role. What about with SEO being a big priority, it would seem that customer reviews and reputation management would also be equally high priority. How do you handle that? Is that handled all at corporate or do the local representatives have a role to play there as well? Yeah, we love reviews. We know how important they are. And we I say this, we know how important they are. They're really, really important for our digital visibility, but we also know they're really, really important to future customers looking yeah, at Yeah, it's got product. a dual purpose. Yeah, to absolutely. Those. Yeah. And so we look at it that way and respond that way, meaning we've been actively generating reviews more than five years now. And what I mean actively is we have a team here centrally that looks at like how can we help drive reviews through emails to customers, texts, et cetera. And then we've had a goal with our operations team, so the store managers, of an active goal. And so that happens every year. We look at what should that goal be, and we agree on a goal, and then we drive it forward with their partnership on the op side. So that's phenomenal, and that's helped us tremendously. And then we use some tools and you know some tools to help us manage it. We have a digital team at our call center here locally that respond to all reviews. And we respond to those reviews within 24, sometimes 48 hours, but it's usually 24 hours. Yeah. And we take a lot of pride in doing that without those being fully automated. So we know they need to connect back to the consumer who wrote it or to the consumer's friend or, you know, anyone that looks at it to not say, this is just a canned response. It needs to be authentic. So certainly we have some templates that help us get the review response started. But then we also have a process where we customize those so they're meaningful to the person who wrote them and helpful to customers that might be reading them as they consider storage. I'm like a little bit giddy over here (laughs) hearing you talk about the importance of reputation management and authenticity. Because again, I talk to so many brands, CMOs who are like, yeah, like we'll respond to the one stars and it's a canned response. And it's like, it's not meaningful. It's not authentic. They're just kind of like checking the box. But I mean, you could actually see a serious business result revenue impact from investing in, you know, what just seems like a throwaway tactic to some, right? But this is a business mover for extra space storage. It's a business mover for sure. So I love that you're giddy because it's something that we see almost as an obvious, as a like a table stake of what businesses should be doing in this retail space. It's going to do the right thing for the customers or future customers looking for our product. And I think that speaks to the brand, like the brand shines through in our reviews. We our average star rating is 4.9. Whoa. Which, yeah, in partnerships, they see a lot of reviews. They're like, we don't know how you guys are getting 4.9, but it's amazing. Keep doing what you're doing. But I think it's it's because our brand is strong and that, you know, the interaction with the store managers is strong, which is part of our brand. Like that whole experience is your brand and it's really strong for us. So, And to our earlier point around mom and pops, again, I just try to tell brands like, do what mom and pops do. And of course, mom and pops are responding to every review within 24 hours, one star, two star, four star, five star. They respond to all of them because it's their business. It's like they're one, generally they're one location and the business that they 
earn their livelihood off of. So of course they're going to respond to their customers. Yeah, right? it's and, in, that's interesting. And, I don't know that we see that in our space. Oh, you I'll, don't? I'll ha- yeah, I'm going to poke around. Well, you, you certainly see it like in a coffee shop or a Mexican yes. restaurant. Yes, right? yes. And that's also part of the Google algorithm is yep. to say, we're going to show you not just the star rating plays a role for sure, but uh, review response time plays a role in the algorithm, just responses in general, because Google wants to serve up relevance. The responses and quality of responses. And quality right? of responses. Yeah. yeah. Google does yeah. not want to see you responding with the same thing that says to go to support at, you know, your right. brand.com. Like right. nobody wants to see that, <laughs> at least of all Google. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it's tricky for some, depending on scale and sophistication, to understand or to connect the impact that that's having back to their business. Then that brings me to kind of the AI conversation because there's, you know, you say you got four or five people doing that. And now, I mean, AI is doing a pretty good job, (laughs) generative AI of doing review response, creating content, even having conversations that the consumer would be none the wiser that they're talking to AI. And I'd say it's still like, you know, we're still 1.0 right now and that. For sure. Quickly getting through that. How do you guys, whether it's generative AI or, you know, kind of more machine learning AI, talk to me about what that conversation is like in an extra space storage. Yeah. So how does it drive efficiency with our internal teams and processes and potentially allow our internal teams to do smarter work and get rid of some of the work that is easily automated and mundane tasks anyway. And so we think about it that way. And we're putting a lot of energy looking at where there are opportunities for this. And I would say even on the reviews, we've done a small step through AI is helping us there through some automated templates. You can go in and tell the tool, hey, tell me what we've got on cleanliness. It gives you a few options. You pick it. So that's baby step there. Mm-hmm. So we're we're moving into this and we have a committee within the organization that is looking and focusing on AI and how it will help our business. But our focus is internal first. We want to test it and understand it and a few times internally before we do anything that's external facing to our customers. You know, we don't want to move too quickly to something that could harm that customer experience and potentially revenue. What about your data? I mean, you guys you guys sit on a ton of yeah. data. Are you are you applying AI to that to generate insights yeah. and make yeah, better for decisions? Sure. For sure. I mean, I, I reference some internal models we've built, our pricing model and our model that helps our paid search program. Those already use some AI features and mm-hmm. have data capabilities. So we're already doing some of this, even whether it's certain products we're using with Google on how to target the best customers and get the best return. And we turn that over to Google with some data and the AI portion of the model does the rest for us. So we're already doing some of this and excited about where it goes in the future. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. It is exciting. I think yeah. there's a, not a be cautious, but be careful, under, oh, yeah. understand first. That's the reason we believe in the testing model, but test it, understand it, make sure that it works. You're being responsible with it. And then it's going to do the right thing for the business and the customers. Let's pivot the conversation a little bit to your career story. So you've been with the company nearly 25 years. So that's both rare and amazing. Let's get into that story. Where'd you start? What were some of the critical roles you've had with the company leading up to you know where you are now? Yeah. So I started just about 25 years ago. Prior to Extra Space, I was at a tech firm here in Salt Lake City 
California for three com corporation for anyone knows of it. Palm pilot was one of their products. Oh my gosh. Right. Flashback. So that was a tech firm here locally. One of the individuals involved with three com actually from megahertz, which goes way back. And many people on this call might not even know that name, but was one of the original founders, Spencer Kirk. And so after he did very well with that journey of his career, he came to Extra Space with Ken Woolley, who was the founder, with the goal of growing this into something big. Ken was very entrepreneurial and had a lot of businesses at the time. And Spencer was in retirement from a success in the high tech space. And they got together because they had a vision of turning something small into something great and having an organization that people would love to work at. So I was fortunate enough, I was at 3Com, young in my career and actually enjoying what I was doing there. It was during the high-tech boom and I was working with agencies all across the country. Yeah, that, doing- was, that was actually the first connected device I ever owned. Yeah, was that the Palm, Palm Pilot. Pilot. Yeah, with like the full screen. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I actually had one of those things. All right, fun to think <laughs> it wasn't about. Very, right? It wasn't very effective. <laughs> no, I know. It was cool then. <laughs> it was really cool though. So yeah. short story, because of Spencer Kirk's influence on 3Com, formerly Megahertz, and the culture there, several people left that knew of him to come to Extra Space. And I worked with someone at 3Com who's one of those individuals who left and he called me and said, hey, you need to come over here and join Extra Space. And I was like, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. Why would I, why <laughs> would I go tech. from high tech yeah. to low tech? <laughs> as low tech as you could go, right? And it was a small company at the time, really small company. So it didn't feel like anything I should pay attention to. But he was persistent, thankfully so now in reflection, came and checked it out and was sold on that interview, but started... At the ground floor. I mean, he, he was, I was the third person to join to help start the marketing team. And it was all direct mail and yellow pages. With and, 35, you said, right? But yeah, with about 35 properties, third person to join on the marketing team with the goal of like, let's build something cool here and figure out how to drive traffic and help the company grow and show that we can be, you know, something significant that can help the company grow. So, but ground floor, like, you know, marketing coordinator, doing whatever I was told to do. And I've stayed in marketing my entire career. So I haven't really left and gone into other departments, although there's massive collaboration with other departments. So I've learned a lot about other areas of the business. But my journey has been in marketing and it's been coupled with being married and a mom and having three kids throughout that journey. And so kind of deciding at different points in my career, where's the best place for my time and energy to go? Can I do full time with kids or do I need to take a step back a little bit and spend more time with the kids? And when can I ramp back up? I think it's a pretty cool story because I've been able to do that through my career and balance it as well as possible. Sometimes not balance it at all. (laughs) Balance is overrated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But it's allowed me to grow at the pace that made sense for my life and what was important to me at at different points in my career, if that makes sense. Nice. Wow. I mean, what were some of the critical moments in that journey? Yeah. I mean, I would say even early on being, you know, employee number three of a tiny team, my boss and mentor trusted me a lot. So he he told me pretty early when I came here and we had had a little bit of experience working together at 3Com as well, but he came here, you know, he gave me great advice of, Hey, we're a small, nimble company, but there's an attitude of growth and desire for the company to grow as well as for individuals to grow. You just need to decide if you want to be one of those individuals or not. 
And I was like, well, doesn't everyone? And he's like, well, maybe they say they do, but it's really about your actions and how you show up every day and how you contribute. So that's what I mean by you got to decide if you want to be one of those people and you could create a career path based on that. So I remember just hearing that and thinking, okay, wow, I'm going to see what that means and what I can put into this and what I can make of it. But recognized, hey, there's a lot of this, if not all this career is on me. The company's here for me and they'll support me and encourage me along the way. But it's up to me to take this into my own hands. And so that was a pivotal moment. And I'd say pivotal moment number two is as my kids were coming into this world and I was a mom with three small boys, being able to balance that in a way that was meaningful. I recognized pretty quickly after having children, I still wanted to be involved and have a career, but I didn't want to sacrifice too much of that time with my kids at a young age. So having a time where I could balance that was pivotal. But then when I was ready to jump back in the game more, if you will, being able to do that, I wasn't sure, you know, when I pulled back a little, I wasn't sure if I'd really get an opportunity. But going back to the earlier advice of, you know, you got to decide if you want it. I kept showing up every day. I didn't take for granted that I was able to pull back. I still met my commitments and showed up. And so I attribute a lot of to the reason why I had the opportunity to get back in the game. And then my career grew pretty quickly after that because of how I showed up every day and how I contributed to the company and made sure that they recognized I'm here for the team and for the company as well. Even though I've pulled back a little bit for personal reasons, I'm still committed and want to be part of this organization. I think it was very astute of you to know what you were hearing at that early moment that it was yours to make. Like there was going to be no cap on your growth or potential. And when a leader tells you that, I think, you know, especially when you're young, like you, you need to know what you're hearing. For sure. Right? For sure. No. Because <laughs> it's not it's not every day that you get that and in, in every role. Like most roles, honestly, are capped and you're gonna need to move on. But when a leader says that, like, look, this is yours to do as much or as little as you want, and you're the type of person that, that can take advantage of that, like those two things coming together is is really powerful. Yeah. And I would even say too that at the time when he told me that, I didn't see the ceiling as high as he did because we were a small team and there was like, okay, well, wait, above me is you and above you is one other individual. Where would this even go? So I think people have to remember there may be a cap that you see today that might not be there in six months or in three years. And are you in this and you want to see the doors that open along the way? If you are, then you got to show up so that if and when those doors open up, and they oftentimes do, that you're ready for one of those opportunities. And obviously, being involved that early, you probably played a pretty big role in defining the culture here at, for, at yeah. Space, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is also awesome. That's like yeah. one of the best things. Yeah. For me, that was the best thing in starting my company was just being able to create a company and define the culture and then hire the people that I knew would support that culture Yep, and be a place where people wanted to work. You mentioned that earlier about, about the founder, because another motivation of starting my company is I just wanted to start a company that I wanted to work at. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Cause I hadn't found one yet. Yeah. No, <laughs> so it's like, it's, okay, I'm just going to start one. Yeah. I think you talk to anybody here. That's why they're here. Right. Is it's a goal of ours to make extra space, a great place to work and people sincerely enjoy it and show up every day because they enjoy it. So it's, it's a big thing. It's a big thing. In wrapping up, I could go on for hours here. Yeah. This is really amazing. 
Any open roles on the team that listeners should know about? We don't have any open roles today, but I would say if you're interested, like what you've heard, we love people to reach out regardless, because like I said a minute ago, you don't know when those doors are opening and growth opportunities definitely happen around here. So what's the best channel for that? So I'd go to our website, extraspace.com. We've got a careers page and it's got lots of information there. So yeah, check Uh, us out. We'll include that in the show notes. Dana Hathaway, thanks so much for joining us on Clicks to Bricks. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it on LinkedIn and to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, you can sign up for our newsletter at clickstobricks.fm for exclusive content and previews of upcoming shows. I'm your host, Rob Reed, and this is Clicks to Bricks, a podcast about multi-location marketing. Clicks to Bricks.